everybody. It's Wednesday night, and we're going to continue our study on 1 Peter as we're doing that inductive Bible study. So I want to welcome you to another episode of The Armchair Theologian. And the goal of The Armchair Theologian is to create uh, more armchair theologians, people that can easily sit in the comfort of their own home and open up God's Word and not only study it, but study it for change. The whole point of studying God's Word is not so that we can just ingest and bring the stuff into our brain and body, but it's so that we might be able to become effective ministers and, um, and be able to do what God has called us to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. And so this is kind of where we're at um, with our study. And so as we continue to move through this, uh, I would definitely encourage you guys to uh, take some of the lessons that we're, that we're learning not just about First Peter, but about how to study any passage of Scripture. We've been doing an inductive Bible study, and I've just been doing it really slow with you guys. And so today we're going to be looking at First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 11. That's a pretty large stretch of uh, verse. So we're not really going to be studying tonight in this discussion that we're having all of those verses. I'm only going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. But in your own personal study, as you are learning these principles of, indu of the inductive Bible study method, um, I would encourage you to continue to do that as well. Because there are lessons to be learned as you go through Scripture that you can only do it in a, in a systematic uh, way, like the inductive Bible study. Now, we've, we've talked about the three different levels that you have in this. The first level is just the facts. What is the Scripture actually saying? Um, and the second level is the, is the deep dive. As you go in there and you start looking, at, uh, you start looking at the verses that are being used, you start looking at um, uh, the, some of the Greek behind it. You're looking at individual words that are repeated, that, are, that stand out to you. You're looking at phrases that you don't understand, uh, things that can be can be misconstrued. This is where the critical thinking comes in because a lot of times when we read scripture, we can read it on the surface and get a surface understanding, but a lot of times that surface understanding is not accurate. Uh, and so we need to be able to dive a little deeper. So whenever you come up with a with a phrase or a passage in the scripture that we're, that we're studying that seems formulaic or seems um, uh, maybe in some cases a little too easy, uh, to understand. Sometimes it's a little too difficult. Whatever the reasoning behind it, uh, whatever the Holy Spirit is trying to guide you towards, you have to be sensitive to that. So find those passages that, that God is trying to draw you closer to, and then do a deep dive on them. Uh, look at where those the words in that passage is uh, repeated in other places in Scripture so you can get a better understanding of what the word means. You need to have a good Bible dictionary. You need to have a good concordance. Um, it might even be nice to have a, a Greek to English lexicon so that you can be able to really do a deeper dive. And this is just New Testament studies. Old Testament, you'd obviously want to have some Hebrew. And Hebrew is, is a much more difficult language to, uh, to get a grasp on than, than the Greek, even though the Greek is at times difficult as well. And then the third stage that I usually try to encourage people to do is, is to take what you've learned and then apply it to your life. How can I apply that? So we're really not going to be focusing on stage three in this. Um, that's what you're going to be doing at home as you continue this study for the rest of the week. 
Um, what we are going to be doing is focusing on, on this first stage and the second stage. So we're going to touch the first stage by reading the scripture, and then we're going to sort of deep dive into the second stage as we look at some of the words and passages around there. And then I'm going to leave you to your own devices and with the help of some study questions that we'll post in the comments. Um, and I'm also going to put up some words uh, that you would want to be able to look at, words that in the Greek um, that these passages really sort of uh, touch on, these, these important words to know. And I would encourage you to look at that. So if that being the case, I'm going to go ahead and open up uh, God's Word. And we're going to go ahead and read from 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We're going to do, I'm just going to read 13 and 14 uh, because those are the passages we're really going to be studying today. Um, but I do want to encourage you to go all the way through uh, chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 11. That's the full, um, the full teaching that Peter really wants to bring out. Now, if you've been in this study before, you know that when they're dealing with Peter, he's dealing with a group of believers that are going through some persecution, that's struggling in their walks. Now, this is not the kind of persecution where um, Christians are being hung on crosses and burned to light uh, the way into Rome. That's, that happens later on under the reign of Nero and, um, and Trajan and Domitian and some of these other emperors that just had a, a fixation and an anger uh, towards the Christian uh, uh, people. And so they really uh, uh, brought that out, obviously heavily um, controlled by uh, the powers uh, that, are, that are arrayed against Christianity. Uh, but we're dealing now with something just a little bit different. He's, he talked a little bit about um, some other things like husbands, wives, what it means to look in uh, in the Christian walk, and now he's going into another area about suffering, and, and this is the thing I, I think is so important. As a Christians, we need to recognize the fact that we are not called uh, to live a life of happiness and roses and daisies. We're not, we're not looking at a bowl filled with cherries with no pits. We're looking at a life that's a mixture of blessing and suffering, and the suffering really is what leads us to even greater blessing. And that's what Paul was, or that's what Peter is saying in this passage. In verse 13, chapter 3, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Okay? So, what we're having here is just the beginning of the teaching on what it means to, to have that suffering, if you will, for the sake of Christ. Uh, Jesus said that if you want to be his follower, we need to be willing to take up our cross daily and follow him. And Peter, who was one of the very closest friends that Jesus had while he walked here on earth, um, is mirroring this same thing. He's taking that central teaching that was so much a part of what Jesus had to say on a day-to-day -day basis for the three years he ministered and bringing this out. And Peter is trying to make sense of this. Peter actually went through his own inductive Bible study um, when he just looked at the, the words of Jesus, mirrored that up with what the Old Testament speaks about, and then brought this out in an inductive way so that we might be able to have the fruit of that. And so this is where chapter 3 comes in. Um, he wants to bring that, that suffering back out. So Peter is, is concluding at the end of verse 12, which I'll read to you um, in a moment. But at the end of verse 12, he's sort of promising that the Lord's favors on the righteous. Look what it says in verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord 
are toward the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's quoting there from Psalm chapter 34, verses 15 and 16. And he's trying to bring that, that, that timeless truth of the Old Testament of God's word into the reality of the discussion he's bringing. He's actually preaching a sermon and using God's word to do it. And so in the preaching of this sermon, He's using that as the basis, and then he goes, he rolls right into verse 13. And so the inference there is that God will will have his favor on the righteous, and he's going to eventually punish the evildoers. Now, we like that in our culture. We love the idea of punishing evildoers. The reality is, is that a lot of times, evil doesn't seem to get punished in our lifetime, and that frustrates us. It frustrates the psalmist. Uh, there are several psalms in the Old Testament that talk about this. One in particular says, why did the heathens rage and don't seem to have any problems um, and the psalmist is complaining to God he's like all I'm doing is what you've told me to do and I'm getting I'm getting dumped on but the people that are continually doing evil in your sight they don't seem to get away with it well that's because sin is pleasurable for a season and eventually God's justice will come to fruition and a, and a, 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 a timeliness is in God's hands not ours and so why we want maybe the punishment to happen much more rapidly than it does doesn't mean that it won't. And remember, we're not talking in terms of, of five years, ten years. Even Peter says that um, the timeliness of God is different than ours. A day for for uh, for the Lord is like a thousand years for us. And so we need to recognize that his uh, that he is not going to delay his judgment. His judgment will come exactly when he wants it to. So let's go ahead and move on. It says, "Who then can harm you if you prove zealous?" zealous for what is good. Peter, uh, Peter wants us to know that God's mercy is going to be on us and that we really are, in many ways, are, uh, I like to use the word immortal. We, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't die. No, no harm, you know, nothing by the hand of man will ever be able to cause harm against us without the express permission of Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing to, to recognize. And this harm that we're talking about is, is harm that the evil folks purposely do to us that has no benefit whatsoever from God. But even God talks about from Genesis all the way through that what the enemy means for evil, God will always use for his glory and his good. All things work towards good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. These are promises both in the Old and New Testament that we have. And God is saying since, since no one can ultimately harm believers because we are living under the blessings of God and we should be encouraged by that. Verse 15 goes on in, in this particular passage. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense um, to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that was in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So he rolls right into the point of what our Christian walk is. I know I said I wasn't going to do verse 15, but it almost feels like you can't get away from it, right? Verse 15 is, is part and parcel. But then again, we can go on and read 16 and 17 and 18 all the way through because that's the nature of God's word. But I really just want to focus on these first, um, the first few things. The idea of, of suffering for Christ and receiving a blessing from it is the mo one of me one to me one of the most powerful testimonies 
to the truth claims of Scripture. In our Sunday School Zoom meetings, we've been talking about um, answering these apologetic questions when people come to you and ask about certain things about our faith. And Peter says this right here. We sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, and we're always ready to be give a defense. That word defense in Greek is apologia. It means we are to give an apology, a defense, not to apologize, but to give a defense for the word of God, right? And the hope that lies within us. That's our duty. I know I remember one person said, well, I don't want to defend God's word. I'm not asking you to defend God's word. I'm asking you to defend the hope that he has implanted in you, right? And that hope stems completely from the word of God. And people sometimes have erroneous ideas about what scripture really means and how they can apply it to our lives. And so this misnomers, these misunderstandings need to be corrected. And people are going to ask you about this hope, and you need to be able to have a defense in you. And I find that the bit, the, one of the biggest defenses is the fact that people were willing throughout the centuries, from the, from the day after Jesus um, uh, ascended into heaven, which, by the way, today I think is Ascension Day uh, on, the, on the liturgical calendar, so look that up. Um, and so the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, um, from that day forward, people have been willing to die horrible deaths and you say well jesus died the most horrible death ever well yes he died a horrible death but i don't know if it was the most horrible death i mean are we going to do a survey of everybody that's been killed in a horrible manner and ask them hey if you could die a different way would you um would you classify this on a scale of one to ten as the most horrible way to die we don't have a way of knowing that unless we go through it right um, and so there are a number of martyrs out there that have that have in my opinion endured much much harder deaths and they went to their deaths in a much more happier manner than even Jesus did. Um, even Jesus was was agonizing over the death. If you read the account of the Passion, when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he was he was he was sweating blood. He was under so much tension and stress that we don't even begin to comprehend. He was, and he even asked, he said, "If there's any other way for this to happen, please let it please let it go forward." Of course, there was no other way. The only way was for him to go through the cross, and he knew that. And he qualified that statement right afterwards. Says, "But Lord, it's your will be done. I will do whatever you want me to do." He was being completely obedient even unto death, right? And so but we have followers of Christ that have gone to have gone to so horrible deaths, ripped apart by lions, chopped into little pieces, um, flayed alive, uh, burned at the stake. One of my most favorite, um, and by the way, if you don't have a copy of the Fox book, Fox's books, Book of Martyrs, you ought to get one. I would actually encourage you in your own study um, to look at some of these martyrs that were that had gone before us because the church has grown the where it has based upon really on the blood of the martyrs and read through those things and you ought to, I mean once a week once a month you ought to read the account of a different martyr just to give you an understanding of what your faith really has meant traditionally to those that have gone before you one of my favorites is a fellow by the name of John uh, or Jan Hus. Um, he was an individual that came about a hundred years before Martin Luther as, a, as, as he tried to reform the Catholic Church and bring the biblical teaching back into place. And he was uh, called to account, and the Catholic Church could not and would not abide him teaching um, the freedom that's found within Christ, right? Because the freedom that is found within Christ is not a church commodity, and that's what was happening. The church was using the freedom 
for its own ends and its own gain, which was wrong. And so he was teaching a much different gospel than what was being taught in Rome. And in the end, he was, um, he was tried and found guilty of heresy, and he was uh, burned at the stake. And so um, there's an account in Fox's Book of Martyrs about John Huss, and I would encourage you guys to read over that because it's really an amazing account. Um, so when, when, they, when they put that chain around him, when he was being chained to the stake that was going to burn him alive, um, the, uh, the, the, the eyewitness account said that he was smiling, that he was happy. And these were his words. This is what he said as they're wrapping the chains around him. He says, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake. And why then should I be ashamed of this rusty chain that you're putting around me? Imagine that. At the moment of his death, right? At the moment that he's going to be burned alive. And I can't imagine a much worse uh, way to die than being burned alive. I mean, I've been burned a few times in my life. Uh, not horribly, um, but... They've always been very painful. There's a reason why Jesus uses fire as an analogy of what hell is going to be like uh, because of that constant burning feeling. Um, nobody likes to be burned. And he is about to go into one of the most horrible ways to die, which would be burned at the stake. And he's given his captors garbage, right? He's like, dude, this chain you're putting around me, it may be, you may think it's shiny and new, but my Lord and Savior has a much harder chain around him when he went to the cross. And this old rusty thing you're putting around me, ain't nothing right and then it goes on so that they were piling the 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 the, the logs the sticks the the twigs the kindling that was going to be used to burn him aloud and it brought all the way up to his neck they said and the duke of um, Bavaria that was overseeing this um, was begging him to recant his, um, his 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 pronouncement, and they would have let him go if he would have just recanted what he was teaching and said what I was teaching was heresy. Let me off on this. They would have let him go. They would have let. They made him put him in prison the rest of his life, but they would have let him go. And the duke that was there was saying, "Please do this." And no, he said, no, John Huss said. So he goes, I have never preached any doctrine of any evil tendency. Basically, he says, I've never preached any heresy. He goes, what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. Okay? He's like all in on this. He said, this is it. This is what I'm teaching. This is the word of God. And I will go to my death to defend it. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. He goes, and, and so then he turned to his executioners and he says, you are now going to burn a goose, okay? Now you say, well, burning a goose, what does that mean? Well, the word hus in the Bavarian language means goose. And so he says, you're about to burn me, I'm just a goose, right? That's what my last name means. You're going to burn this goose, okay? But in a century, you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Now, this is where it gets crazy weird. And prophecy is one of those things that you need to test every spirit that comes in front of you. You don't just say, if somebody says, hey, I'm a prophet and, you know, and gives you a word, don't just accept it. You, you need to go and line it up with God's word and pray about it. And if the person is true and right, then so be it. If the Holy Spirit gives you the peace to follow that prophecy, do it. Um, but understand this, that no prophecy that's given by man will ever contradict the word of God, ever. Okay, and so this man was giving a prophecy, and no one there knew what it meant. He said, "You're going to burn this goose, but there's going to be a swan that's going to come after you, a hundred years from now, in this century, and you won't be able to touch him." And guess, a hundred years after he went to his grave, guess who showed up on the scene? I know you history buffs already picked it out. Martin Luther. 
the great reformer himself. And so Martin Luther came on the scene 100 years after John Huss died and walked the same road, right? And gave the same kind of teachings, but went deeper and more profound. And the work that John Huss did laid the groundwork. And everybody that watched John die knew that this was a truly a man of God that was, that was willing to die for his convictions. Are we willing to die for our convictions? Well, we're not being asked to for the most part, at least not here in North America. But that doesn't mean it won't in the future. So think about this. Are you willing to die for your convictions? Do you even know what you believe enough that you would, that would make it worth you dying for? Think about that. Peter is just now affirming in verse 12 that the Lord had favor on the righteous. And he's setting his face against those who practice evil. And he's going to speak this final judgment, this judgment that those who live righteously will be rewarded and the wicked will be judged. And the reward may not always be right here on earth. Our reward may be something that's, in, in our mind, delayed, but in God's mind and in God's, God's heart, it's timely, right? Um, and so this is the, the question you need to ask yourself when you're following the Lord Jesus. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to accept that suffering that is endemic into what God is trying to uh, call you to do. If you're not, then you need to ask yourself, do you really believe the things that are taught in Scripture? Um, these, these three verses, 13, 14, and I'll even throw 15 in there because I think it's important we look at them, is an important discussion in the life of Christ. Now, I can easily do just these three verses as an inductive study. And then, obviously, right after that, you can jump right into where the application is. And I'm going to let you leave the application to yourself. But the goal here is to look at what we are called to do. We are, we are called to be zealous for Christ. And when we say those words, zealousness, and I've used this in the sermons time and again. I've done this in other studies that I've talked about, what zealous really means. Zealous to you and I, isn't the same thing to Peter, Paul, and the disciples. Zealousness in the mind of the disciples was defined by the zealots that went before. Now, you say, well, what about Simon the Zealot? Are we talking about him? No, we're not talking about Simon the Zealot, which was an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're talking about all the way back into the book of Exodus, in the time when the Jews were coming back out of captivity, when they were looking for the um, uh, the call that Christ has placed on on our lives, um, even back then, and so there was an individual named Phineas, and Phineas was um, the son of Aaron, and there were some problems in the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel, the, the the men were taking wives of the nations around them while they were traveling through the wilderness under judgment, and they were causing God to get angry, and so Phineas, filled with the zeal of God grabbed a spear and went through the entire camp of Israel and he killed man after man after man who was not willing to follow the commandments of God. And he was commended by God and he was commended in the minds and the hearts of first century Jews who were living in the time of Jesus, Peter, John, Paul, and all the other disciples. And so in light of that, this, this zealousness that we're talking about was a was a something to be commended. So if you had the zeal of uh, a Phineas, that was something to be proud of. Now, I know we talk about being prideful and we get into all these other areas, but we're not going to go there. The point is, is that we are called to be zealous. 
We are called to bear the cross of Christ. And our zealousness should be in our desire to be humble and our willingness to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. This is where our zealousness comes out. We're not called to grab a spear and run through the camp of, of Israel. We're called to make a defense. So our spear is our apologetics, our ability to be able to uh, parse out right from wrong in the minds and hearts of those that don't know him. So when you're asking me, should we be zealous? Should we, um, should we learn apologetics? My answer is yes, yes, and yes. We are called to be zealots for the cause of Christ. Peter says that if you are zealous, he's going to have favor on you. Two verses, or a verse and a half later, he says that we are called to give a defense whenever anybody asks for the hope that lies within us. So yes, yes, and yes. Our hope that is within us is infectious. If we can't show our hope to a world that needs it, then we shouldn't even call ourselves Christians. And that's just the way it is. Now, I could go on, I could preach, and I think I did just wax into a preaching moment for that, I can only apologize. Um, but I encourage you, as you're reading through this passage, to do what any armchair theologian should do. Parse it out, apply it to your life, and draw closer to God. So, as we come to the close of yet again another armchair theologian episode, I want to encourage you to be truly followers of Jesus Christ. Again, we thank you for tuning in. Hope you have a great Wednesday, and we will see you when we see you.